0: There are two major places in the book of Ephesians where Paul talks about unity. He talks about the first kind of unity in chapter 2, which we could say are the indicatives, the, the truths about us. And then in chapter 4, he talks about the imperatives, how we are, are to be unified based upon who we are. And this is exactly what's going on here In this great letter. For instance, follow along as I read the way things are in Christ uh, regarding unity especially in chapter 2 verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you're like me and you've read this a number of times you can see manifold numbers of ways that Paul describes the unity of salvation between Jews and Gentiles. Did you see all of them listed there? I saw 10 designations that speak of our unity as Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ. Look at that again. Look at the word one, verse 14. One new man, verse 15. Reconcile us both in one body, verse 16. One body, again it says in verse 16. We both, speaking of the two becoming one, we both have access, verse 18. Fellow citizens, verse 19. The whole structure, referring to all of us, verse 21. Being joined together, verse 21. A holy temple, verse 21. Being built together, verse 22. You see all of those designations? And they're all designed to talk about the unity that we share, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our background regardless if we widened it to our financial status, uh, our different cultures with which all of us were brought up. Whatever it is, doesn't matter, even though Paul's talking here about Jews and Gentiles. What matters is that we're all one in Christ, one, one new man reconciling us both in one body, one body, having both access, fellow citizens, the whole structure being joined together, a holy temple being built together. That's an amazing series of statements by Paul to show that the hostility between Jews and Gentiles have been obliterated in Christ. And he's talking in that indicative mode. He's saying this is the way things are between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And of course, in the world at that time, much different than our own, the world was classified into those two ethnicities, Jews and non-Jews. Even if those non-Jews, those Gentiles were Greeks or Romans or Ethiopians, doesn't matter. Paul is saying we are, because of the cross, one in Christ. This is who we are. And not being done with the idea of who we are in Christ He says, this is what you ought to do in light of being unified in Christ. And he does that in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." And then notice the ones here. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now again, this is Paul at his amazing best under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us this is who you are and this is how you ought to live together. This this is what the body of Christ is comprised of and then this is how the body of Christ ought to act toward one another. Since you are unified under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are also then to act and react and respond to each other in the kind of unity that he talks about here. Why? Because he says there is one body and one spirit and you have one hope and you have one Lord and you have one faith and you have one baptism and you have one God and Father of all. So you ought to act like who you are. You ought to respond like who you've been comprised to be in the body of Christ made up of different ethnicities, different financial backgrounds, different cultural baggage, but it is all level at the cross. This is his point. This is what he's saying. This is the message tonight. And I hope to be both very, very practical and very, very substantial in the sense of how Paul describes this. And what I want to do is to give you four key words, four key words that describe what Paul is referring to here in chapter 2 regarding Jews and Gentiles together forming the body of Christ. And here's the first one. Here's the first word. The first key concept. Alienation. You say, well wait a minute. That does not sound like a unifying word, right? Well it isn't because Paul has to back up Just like he did in chapter 2 when he said you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were following the course of this world, you were following the prince of the power of the air, you were depraved in your former nature. That's what he's saying to remind them about where they've come from. And he does the same thing right here in chapter 2. He's going to remind them of who they were. Especially these Gentiles. Especially these, these Asians in Asia Minor. He's going to tell them who they were before they were joined with believing Jews to form the body of Christ. And so the first key word is Paul saying I want you to remember who you were before Christ came into your life and the key word there is alienation. Look back at verses 11 and 12. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Not in the flesh in the sense that they were were fleshly, although that's true. He's simply saying, this is who you were raised to be. You were not Jews. You were non-Jews. And you remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. That was your ethnicity. He's acknowledging that that's who they are in their physical descendancy. Called, he says, the uncircumcision. And, of course, you know why Paul says this. The Jews of that time were, of course, designating themselves as the circumcision because of the cutting away of the foreskin by God's command that would set them apart as God's holy people. And all of those, even though there were some who practiced this same thing, some non-Jews, but the vast majority of of those non-Jews in the world of the first century would have seen this particular practice as abhorrent and repugnant. They would have seen themselves as not desiring this, as not wanting to be a part of the Jewish nation and so Paul for the sake of characterizing them says I know that's what you were. Remember at that time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision by the Jews Which, by the way, he says, is made in the flesh by hand or by hands. This is, of course, Paul acknowledging to them that the Jews were endeavoring to be obedient to God's command for this idea of circumcision. And yet when he says made by hands, he he gives a, a little bit away because he's describing the fact that this isn't necessarily exactly what God believes needs to happen in the body of Christ. So he's designating the truth that yes, there are Jews who circumcise themselves, and yet, probably even going far beyond even the command of God, these Jews were probably, by this very action, marking themselves out as a superior people. And that they would then look down their noses at everybody, non-Jews, who would not do this practice, and they became quite smug, quite proud, quite arrogant in their doing of this practice because they thought we're on the inside, we're a part of the in crowd, and everybody who's not are not part of us, and therefore we are superior to them. That's what he's saying. He says, remember, second time, verse 12, remember that you, speaking of these Gentiles, were at that time, and then he gives five designations. Five designations, five descriptions of alienation. And here's what he says You were at one time, here's the first one, separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. They didn't know Christ. Most of these Jews, interesting, might not have ever even heard the term Christ before Paul came into town. They didn't know that Jesus was the Christ they were utterly and completely separated from Christ. Maybe even from the knowledge of Christ. They didn't have the kind of uh, speed of information that we have today. And so, so many of them were serving all of their myriads of gods. And Ephesus itself was a place in which they served, for instance, the Diana cult. The, The idea of the fertility cult of that time. And because of that... They were so enmeshed in their own religious practices, serving multiple gods, and therefore, when Paul comes and preaches to them or others, they have no awareness of a relationship, a saving relationship to Christ. He says they're separated from Christ. Secondly, he says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Separated, alienated, from the community of the believing. These who were following Yahweh God. They were alienated, estranged. And again it's not a pretty picture. It's showing them who they were. And then thirdly he says strangers to the covenants of promise. Covenants in the plural, probably a reference to at least the Abrahamic covenant and probably the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of law-keeping. The Gentiles had no idea about these things. They didn't know about Christ. They were estranged from the community of the believing, and they were strangers to the covenants of promise. And then notice the fourth and the fifth designations here, having no hope. They had no hope. All that they assumed was going to happen was on the point of birth, looking forward ultimately to the point of death. They had no hope, no hope in the world. And he says, and without God in the world. Ah, theas. They were godless. Now, they served a multiplicity of gods, but they didn't know Yahweh God. They didn't have a relationship with Him. They didn't know Christ. They were alienated and estranged from the community of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. They had no hope at all, and they were without God in the world. They were godless. They were ah, God. This is a very, very sad picture, and it frames for us exactly what Paul told them in chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a very, very sad picture of our key idea, alienation. And yet, what does he say in the next phrase in verse 13? But now, just as he did in verse 4 of chapter 2, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 4 of chapter 2, and now, he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, You who once were far off, a reference to the Gentiles, far off from Christ, far off from the community of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, no hope without God in the world. You were far off from any saving relationship to God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What's our second key word? reconciliation. Reconciliation. Why is that our key word? Because notice what he says in verse 14 and following, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. As much as there was alienation between these Gentiles and the Jews, and by the way, they were both wrong. They were both wrong. The Gentiles were serving pagan gods and they were wrong for doing it and they were under the judgment of God and they deserved God's wrath. They deserved an eternity in hell but so did the Jews because the Jews believed that by their law keeping because they thought they were in through their lineage to Abraham because they thought they had an in with Moses the law giver they thought they were in and they looked down their noses at the Gentiles while the Gentiles were serving foreign gods and they had a hypocrisy of themselves because even though they said they were serving the right God they were doing it in a prideful way and so they in a sense too were cut off because they had no saving relationship to God by faith. It's a sad picture for both of them really. Massive alienation and yet now he says you have reconciliation. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Don't you love that phrase? Reconcile us through the cross. Reconciliation. God bringing peace out of hostility. God taking through this reconciling act of the cross of Christ and not only making us individually and this is what you would say about yourself tonight, not only God making me who were once hostile to God instead of an enemy of God now a friend of God. And that's what he's doing with these two groups. He's showing them that their reconciliation to God not only brings them individually into a right relationship with God reconciling this enemy status with God to a status of peace through the cross but he also is saying that there's a double reconciliation because it's a reconciliation not only vertically individually with my relationship with God but horizontally with my brother and my sister in Christ whether he's a Jew or he's a Gentile. It's a double reconciliation that he's referring to. This is reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other and I don't want you to miss that. Look at how many times Paul mentions here The word peace, or maybe even its opposite to emphasize peace. I see six of them here at least. Verse 14, peace. Verse 14, he has obliterated the dividing wall of hostility. And by the way, when he mentions that phrase, the dividing wall of hostility, he could even potentially be talking about a literal wall of hostility. Think about it in the temple area of Jewish worship, they would have various areas that were designated for people to worship in, including the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. That's what it was called. And in this court of the Gentiles, it was away from where the Jewish men especially were being able to worship. And in this court of Gentiles, at a certain designated spot, In the history, and we know this because of archaeology, they have uncovered signs that just beyond the court of the Gentiles, these signs would read something like this Gentiles go no further upon the pain of death. There was a wall, literally speaking, in which those Gentiles could not pass. And it was never, ever a good thing for a Gentile man to walk past that area and to walk into the other court where the Jewish males would be worshiping. And if one did so, they would certainly have been put to death. They would not have been able to worship together as a Jewish man and a Gentile man. Isn't that amazing? Amazingly reprehensible, isn't it? You and I say... But because we have Christ, we're able to worship together. Look at all the people who are worshiping tonight in this place. Men and women and children, black and white, financially successful and financially struggling. You can use any designation you want. But there is, there is level ground at the cross because of what Jesus has done to reconcile all of us together. It was not so at that time. And so when he says that he did away with the wall of hostility, it might have been both literal and spiritual. Jews and Gentiles ought to be able to worship together. You say, how do you know that there was such hostility like this? I mean, you could point to a sign that might have been designated somewhere and maybe they didn't always follow their own rules. No, I want you to look at Acts 21. Acts 21. And remember, this is one of these prison epistles, and Paul is actually writing this letter from where? Prison. And why was he there? Well, here was one of the charges against Paul. He was arrested, according to Acts 21, in the temple area. Acts 21, 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out men of Israel help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place that was a spurious charge that was a bogus charge it was not true but they were bound and determined to destroy Paul because Paul had gone over to the other side and he was following the way the way of Christ Jesus saying I am the way Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed, now that was a big supposition, right? They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And what was the reaction? Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. You see the hostility? See the wall of hostility that's put up? And as they were seeking to kill him word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. You see the dividing wall of hostility that's been erected? And Paul was accused, wrongly so, of bringing Trophimus the Ephesian not just into the court of the Gentiles but into the actual intertemple area where the Jewish males were able to worship and somebody started fostering that rumor and of course it wasn't true but Paul is now in this state of, of persecution and suffering because the whole city of Jerusalem is in an uproar because somebody made a claim that wasn't true. That's the kind of hostility we're talking about. And the reconciliation of Christ has obliterated that hostility. Look at verse 15. So making peace. Verse 16. Killing the hostility. And by the way, isn't that uh, ironic? That the killing of Jesus brought the killing of the hostility? The very death of Jesus brought the end to hostility? Jesus is killed and yet by the very act of his killing kills the hostility. It's a wonderful truth. And verse 17, he came and preached peace to those far and to those who are near. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six designations of peace, 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 peace. Paul is is banging the drum. He's continuing to say time and again, time and again, this is the peace that Christ's cross brings to reconciled sinners, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of that. That is not important. What is important, Paul says, is that Jews and non-Jews are a new creation. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17? If any man is in Christ he is what? He's a new creation. In fact he even says in chapter 6 of Galatians verse 15 it is neither circumcision nor non or uncircumcision that means anything but what means everything is the new creation, the new man. And by the way it isn't just the idea of God somehow figuring a way out to bring Jews with all of their baggage into the body of Christ and the Gentiles with all their baggage into the body of Christ and then we have one new man who's got a lot of baggage. No. What he's actually saying is he brought Jews to faith in Christ He brought non-Jews to faith in Christ and he didn't just bring both of them with their collective baggage. He creates one new man. One new man with new attitudes, new desires, new aspirations. And I would say at the very, very top of that list, a new kind of love. A new kind of love. A love where there is no longer hostility between Jews and non-Jews. A love that speaks of their being in Christ and loving each other with a supreme kind of love because they saw what cost that love to occur and that was the blood of Christ. When we celebrated communion this morning, we celebrated it as one body. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, His death and His burial and His resurrection, we are saying that that is is the issue that binds us together. Not my ethnicity, not, not my heritage, not anything except what Jesus has done for me. That's what binds us together. That's what creates when a Christian leaves California and gets on a plane and flies to some other location and he may not even know any Christians in that area, but if he announces himself as a Christian and if he is that genuine lover of Jesus Christ and he's able to fellowship with those who are also genuine lovers of Christ, they put him up. They take care of him. They serve him. They love him. That's the way it is. That's the kind of genuine unity that Paul is talking about right here. Third word. Third word. Proclamation. Proclamation. Verse 17. And he came, referring to Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who who were near. Now this is so interesting for Paul to to use this phrase and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. When did Christ preach to the Ephesians? Do we have any historical recollection of Jesus going outside of the lost sheep of the house of Israel? We have Jesus even telling His own disciples when He sent them out He said go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when did Christ come and preach peace to them? He didn't. So who is Paul referring to here? He's evidently referring to the apostles. And when Jesus preaches peace He preaches peace through the apostles who then take His message and extends that message to all of those that they preach to. And then that message is preached by the disciples of the apostles like we talked about this morning and then that message is preached to those who are far and wide. Christ is preaching today and he's preaching through me. He's preaching through you. He's preaching through the faithful, able teachers, communicators, evangelists, Bible study leaders of the body of Christ today. Christ is preaching. And that's why Paul can say, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And I love this. If you look at verse 14, look at the first part of verse 14. He is our peace. The essence of Jesus is peace. And then verse 15, the last phrase, he makes peace. And now in verse 17, he proclaims peace. Three different times Jesus is referred to there in terms of peace. He is our peace. And you, of course, know that. That's Isaiah 9-6, isn't it? He's called the prince of what? Peace. He is our peace. Peace. And He's not only our peace, but He makes peace, according to verse 15. And He does so by the reconciling work of His atoning work on the cross. And now it says in verse 17, He proclaims peace. So He's not only our peace, and He not only makes peace between warring factions like these Jews and these Gentiles, but He also proclaims peace. That's proclamation. That's Jesus, our peace. Peace. By the way, when it says, He is our peace, that's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse 5. He will be their peace. Christ brings peace out of the con- conflict that people have. Now you ask me the question, do we have peace in our country? Relatively speaking, we have the freedom to preach Christ, we have the freedom to worship uh, without uh, the kind of uh, reverberation that's sent often in other places to bring authorities to your door. But in some of these other countries that we read about, that we see, if there was a meeting that was going on tonight and someone was being as bold to preach the peace of Jesus Christ it could cost them their very life. And you've seen that and you know that. And there is great hostility especially today and I think it's growing regarding the message of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And there are those, especially those in Muslim dominated countries who don't want that message of peace and who are actually fighting against that message of peace And it'll be off with your head potentially if you were were to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the peace of the world. That he is peace, that he makes peace, and that he proclaims peace. And yet, this is exactly the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. That this great shalom, this wholeness, this peace, this blessing would be to the whole world. This was always in the plan of God. It was always in God's plan to bring peace not only to the Jews but to these Gentiles. This was always in the plan of God. Look in your Bibles back at Isaiah chapter 52. This was was always in the mind and heart of God. This was always what God wanted. Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You say, yeah, well, that sounds like it's to the Jews. And of course, but in chapter 57, you have in verse 19, Isaiah 57, 19, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near. You know what that's a designation of? Exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 17 of chapter 2. He preached peace to those who were far and he preached peace to those who are near. Who are those who are far? Gentiles. That's a designation of non-Jews. And he preaches peace to those who are near. Those are the Jews. And he says right here, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. And look at what he says in chapter 56 in verse 6. And the foreigners, that's us folks, that's non-Jews, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It was always in the plan and the purpose of God to bring this proclaiming peace to the whole world. And Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2, and I'm saying you, to you tonight, this is the hope of every man, woman, and child, Jews or non-Jews this is the hope. It's not just the hope of Israel. It's the hope of all of us. It's the hope of God. It's what he's always planned to see occurring. And Paul says, I'm telling you, these Asiatics, I'm telling you right here. You were so far off. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated. You were estranged from him. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope, and you were without God in the world, and it was a hopeless situation, but God always had a plan, and he effectuated that plan through the cross of Christ, and what he did was this divine mystery of bringing both Jews and non-Jews together into the body of Christ, and he has created one new man out of the two that's what he says this is this is god's plan notice what he says in verse 15 that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and he preached peace to you who were far off you gentiles and peace to those who were near any of the jews who were sitting in that audience sitting in that congregation hearing that letter read here is what their response should have been. Praise God. Praise God. He's brought us together. I don't, I don't have to be hostile to those who have a different skin color than I have. I don't have to be angry because somebody doesn't worship in the way that I've been brought up and taught that we should worship. You remember when Jesus spoke to that woman at the well? and she said, but this is the way we were taught to worship. This is what we were instructed to do. And he just obliterated that by saying, woman, I tell you, there is going to be a time for worship where they will worship in spirit and in truth, and it won't be on that mountain, but it'll be what God is doing to bring together all of those who shall receive living water. This is, this is the joy of knowing our unity in Christ. And Paul hasn't even got to chapter 4 and he hasn't even talked about the practicalities of how this is to work out. And when he does, he's going to say, in humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There it is again, the word peace. And you know what he's saying in essence if you combine chapter 2 and chapter 4 together he might be saying something like this in chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility as Jews and non-Jews and gentleness as Jews and non-Jews with patience toward Jews or patience toward Gentiles bearing with one another as Jews and non-Jews, in love, loving both Jews and non-Jews, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that we now share because the dividing wall of hostility has been rent asunder. Isn't that a glorious message? Isn't that a message for your attitudes and mine about people who worship with you in the church? It should be. It should be for me. Do you know that we live, and I'm sure you do because you live with yourself and I live with myself and our thoughts. Do you know that we live even as individuals, even in the body of Christ, with a veritable sea of opinions? We size people up all the time. We instantly make judgments in our minds about the people we meet. And because we're church-going people, we make instant judgments about people who come in and we talk in our own minds and sometimes it actually comes out of our minds through our lips and we talk about the tallness or the shortness of someone we talk about the weightiness or the thinness of someone we talk about the age of someone or the youth of someone we talk about the clothes of someone or the shabby clothes of another we have so many opinions in our hearts about each other. And the safest place on the planet for virtually most, if not almost all of those opinions is where? In your own mind, not sharing them with anybody. Why? Because with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The safest place for those veritable sea of opinionations is to have you keep them all to your lonesome and instead speak a word of edification as he's going to say at the end of chapter 4. Only such a word as is good for edification so that it might minister to the need of the moment. Does it really matter most of the opinions that we form in our hearts about others it really doesn't in fact what should matter is our love for one another our service toward one another it's not circumcision or non-circumcision but faith working through love he says to the Galatians that's what God is pleased with why because he's the champion of peace the champion of peace He's the ruler of peace, he's the peace giver, he's the peacemaker, he's the peace proclaimer. And that's the peace that we ought to have with one another, with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. That literally means enduring one another. Enduring every single opinion if it is shared and seeking rather to respond in love. And where does all of that come from? The fourth and final word. Communion. Communion. Alienation, reconciliation, proclamation, and communion. Verse 18. For through Him we both, Jews and non-Jews, have access in one spirit to the Father. That is unfettered access to the triune Godhead. Did you notice that? For through him, Christ, the proclaimer of peace, we both, Jews and non-Jews, have access, communion, invitation, participation in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. This is our, this is our communion together. This is the union of our communion. This is the unity of of our access as Christians regardless of our ethnicity right to the throne room of the Father by virtue of the cross of Christ in the one Holy Spirit. This is the communion that we have together. You and I, we were once alienated, strangers, we were lawbreakers, we were haters of God, insolent, proud, We were without hope, we were without without God in the world, and He brought us near, and when He brought us near, we realized how far we were, and when He brought the near, even though they were really farther than the farthest region that they thought they were, and when He brought both into one new man, He created the opportunity for all of us to be at level ground through the cross, in the Spirit, to the Father. What an opportunity for us as those who were strangers, strangers to God, hostile to God, enemies of God, and He, us. And through the cross of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, in the atoning work of Jesus, and what He did through that cross, He brought us through the heavens with access, with communion, directly to the Father. You and I can pray directly to our Heavenly Father. Total access. That is is a phenomenal truth. You have have problems, issues in your life or maybe problems or issues with somebody else in the fellowship, you have complete and total access to the Father to go to him and say, Father, help me with this, help me. Help me be a more loving person. Help me not to have a wrong attitude about this person or that thing or what they did or what they said or how this is going or, or whatever it may be. You and I have total access through the blood of the cross of Christ, by the Spirit, to the Father, so that we can enjoy the union of our fellowship together. That, That should really crawl all over us with the conviction of sin. And it should show us that our communion with Jesus Christ has actually brought us into a place where all of those opinions, all of those ideas, all of that hostility can be laid at the cross through the forgiveness of our sins so that our attitudes could be checked at the door and we would be able to have in this group the kind of love that pervades everyone and everything. That's why he says in Galatians 3.28, there's now neither male nor female Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but we are all one in Christ. This is is who we are, he's telling us. Put your name in there. Lance, this is who you are now. It's not your ethnic background. It's not your financial prowess. It's not anything. It's not even your own pitiful attitudes and your opinions about this person or that thing or this situation, or that ministry, or doing it this way, or leading in this venture, whatever it may be, and however it can be dealt with, it is dealt with by our communion, by going to our Heavenly Father and saying, make me that humble, gentle, patient person who's bearing with one another in love, because Father, I want desperately to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because I want peace based upon the peace giver, the peace maker, and the peace proclaimer. Is this your heart tonight? Is this what you want? Oh, I want so desperately for Thousand Oaks Bible Church to be known as a church that emphasizes truth and love, truth and love. We proclaim the truth and we're unashamed It's the unabashed truth that Jesus Christ is the exclusive way to God. But oh, I want to communicate that message with the graciousness of the person of Jesus Christ who is our peace. Do you remember what those who heard Jesus teach say about him? Oh, the graciousness of his words. That's what we need. That's what we must have. And by God's grace, we'll have that in this fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, this is our heart. This is our desire. This is the unity of our relationship horizontally with one another because of what you've done vertically by sending your Son to die on the cross for sinners like us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that through this communal access. We are able to see new vistas of thought about how this proclamation of peace was given to us and how the reconciling work of Jesus Christ was effected on the cross for us to deliver us from the alienation that was ours prior to Christ. Lord, thank you for our fellowship tonight. Thank you for the love that is pervasive in this fellowship and may it continue to grow. May it be such love, such peace that we would be like the Thessalonians of old for whom Paul said, I have no need to tell you to love one another because you know how to love one another. Just excel still more. May it be true of us and thank you for the unity of Jesus Christ, who is our peace, and what he brings to us in the practical peace of our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.